Now it happened that as he was praying alone, that's Jesus, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. The question of who is Jesus is never a hypothetical. It's never an abstract. It's not something that we just make a decision about in some sort of remote, uh, factual kind of way. Because if Jesus is who he claimed he was, he's God. He's the creator. He's the Lord. He's the one before whom everyone will give account. So he's not somebody that we can just kind of make a decision about. The question always comes not just to who is Jesus, but ultimately who is Jesus to me. Not in some relativistic way, but the absolute reality of who Jesus is has an absolute implication for my life. And that is the defining question for the church, for me, and for all of time. I want to uh, start this morning by kind of sharing a story that's a little familiar perhaps. Um, It was about a man who was lame. He was lame from birth. We don't know exactly what his physical uh, ailment was, but he wasn't able to walk which in his day and age meant he couldn't care for himself either. So he spent his time asking for donations. He spent his time asking for alms, as they called it. And he would go every day to the temple of God, where he would sit at the gate, the beautiful gate, which we don't know which one that is, but we have a pretty good idea. There were nine gates that led into the main section of the temple. Eight of them were gold and silver, and they weren't the beautiful one. The ninth one was actually made of bronze, but it was so extraordinary that it was the one people thought was so exquisite, so amazing. It was so massive that it took 20 men just to push open or push closed the doors to open the gate. So when that gate was open, it was a favorite place for people to go in, and that's probably where the man we're thinking about was. Now, when I say he went there, that's, you have to understand, he went there by someone carrying him. He had to be carried every single day. I don't know how that worked. Maybe he was born into a family with an older brother who looked out for him his whole life, and part of his adult um, responsibility was still taking care of his brother, and whoever he could get to help him, they would maybe firemen carry him from wherever he lived up to the temple, which was really high up, up the stairs, up into the temple complex, uh, probably stopping fairly frequently just to rest. It was a humiliating experience for him to be carried there, and then they set him at the gate, and they went about their business, and he asked, for donations. And he sat there the whole time, hand out, 
probably not even looking people in the eye, saying alms, alms, alms. Now, he was at the popular gate, and he was there at 3 o'clock in the afternoon is when he tended to go there, which was the time of the evening sacrifice. That was rush hour at the temple. That's when the most people would be there. So he's not a calculated man probably, but he's a very practical man. That's the time of day to be there. And giving alms at the temple actually in the minds of his Jewish brothers and sisters was extra meritorious. So he was really set up to do the best he could. If you picture somebody who's on hard times in our culture, it would be finding the best corner at, at rush hour and then putting on the sign, assuming that, assuming that the person is legit. I'm a veteran. Here's a picture of a flag. God bless America. You know, whatever, it would, whatever would catch people's attention and key them most in, that's the equivalent. It's all legit. It's all legit with him. And that's where we find him. And as he's sitting there at the gate, he's begging and he's looking down, not even making eye contact with people. He's been kind of objectified and dehumanized probably. Doesn't have much of a sense of significance in himself. In fact, we know that they would whisper about what kind of sins perhaps he had committed or his family had committed because here's this guy who has this ailment from birth, didn't have the understanding that we would have, I I hope and pray, in our day and age. It was a harder-edged picture that really was unfair to him. And that's what he lived with. So as he's sitting there at the gate begging, hand out, alms, 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 he notices two pairs of feet stopping in front of him. And then he hears a voice that says, look at us. And he looks up and he's looking into the eyes of men he doesn't himself recognize at the moment, but we know they are Peter and John, the two lead apostles And Peter says to him, look, I don't have any silver, I don't have any gold, but what I do have, I'm happy to share with you. And he takes that outstretched hand that's waiting for a few coins for a little bit of change, and he reaches out and grabs him, and in the power of God, gives him not a little change, but a complete life change, pulls him to his feet. And the man starts walking and jumping around. He's never walked before. He's strengthened, and now he's also got the ability to walk And he's running around like crazy, whooping and hollering and praising God. And then he follows them into the temple, something he never, ever could do. Because of his physical ailment in their culture, he was was shut out. This was his first time ever in the temple. He always sat outside. He never got to go inside. Now he went inside with them. He got to be in the temple area. And as, as they're coming out... They wind up past the gate in an area called Solomon's Portico. By this time, there's, there's Bedlam. People have seen this guy. They know who this guy is. He's been there every day. So they all come running together, and they come running together to see what's happened. And he's just praising God, and he's clinging to Peter and John for dear life. And that's where we'll pick up the story. If you want to join me in Acts chapter 3, Let's just read the biblical account of what I've just described to you. 
Verse 1, now Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a lame man from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong, and leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. While they clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Now let's just stop there for a second. Before we get into Peter's sermon, let's look at a couple of things that are significant about this here. Something dramatic has happened that has overtones that we would not necessarily know, but they would have immediately recognized. Somebody being instantly healed, somebody that's asking for a few bucks and being given equivalent of a several hundred thousand dollar surgery, that's extraordinary. That happening in a moment and by a miraculous power, that's even more extraordinary. But there's implications to this that would not have been missed by the people who are in the temple area, that's devout Jewish worshipers who've come to worship. And part of their expectation... They're expecting God to send his Messiah to rescue them. The prince is going to come and rule the kingdom of God, which is, in their mind, going to happen right there, right then, or whenever God chooses. And one of the signs that that's happening, or one of the things that comes along with that, we find in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 35, there's a lot of things listed there, but just to kind of a summarize the section that matters to us, behold, your God will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer. So this is a moment when there's something really significant that's captured people's attention, even beyond the miracle itself, which is actually quite extraordinary. And what's happened is that in the name of Jesus, a miracle has occurred. The name of Jesus, those aren't like magic words, abracadabra, and then something happens. That means that these guys, Peter and John, would claim to represent, to be the rightful representatives of Jesus who has extraordinary power, the power of the messianic age. And in fact, this passage and next week's passage, because they're tied together, uh, the name is really important. That's a major theme here, right? This is happening in the name of Jesus. And then a little later on in his sermon, he's going to talk about this happening in his name. By faith in his name, this happened. Then the next 
uh, scene where they're explaining themselves to the Jewish leaders, it's by the name. There's no other name. It's this name. It's in the name of Jesus, through the name. There's a point being made that what's happening here is not simply about a guy who has a need that has been met by these kind strangers walking along who happen to have some great power. What's happening here is a reality that's tied in with this guy, Jesus. And everything flows from who he is and his authority. And he's the one who's doing things through his representatives that are reserved for the messianic time, which must mean that Jesus is in fact the Messiah and the messianic era has come. And the healing of the lame man really functions as the introduction of Peter's sermon. Peter and John have gone to the temple, and they see this opportunity, and as they heal this man, it sets up Peter's sermon, and it sets up actually the truth that we want to wrestle with this morning. Um, there's two key things that we see about how it sets the sermon up. Uh, he's healed in Jesus' name because Jesus is the exalted Christ. That's, that's the foundation of this, and his healing pictures new life available for those who turn to Jesus. There's, there's something about the healing itself that makes a perfect, if you will, um, object lesson. Not only does it show the power of Christ, it shows the nature of what God has come to do. Now, we, we don't want to over-personalize over things, but I think it's legitimate to see that, that there's some parallels in, in the actual miracle that, that show the truth of God. Here's a guy who has his hands out, literally just looking for some change, a few coins, that's what he's seeking. He doesn't know that he's being confronted, actually, by representatives of the Lord himself, but he is. And God is saying, wait, 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 wait. I don't want to give you a, a few coins to help you through where you are. I want to change you, and I'm going to do something extraordinary here, because what you need is not a little relief and a little help. What you need is a transformation to take place, right? That's literally what happens to this this. Uh, this man who's sitting by the gate, but it becomes the backdrop, the visual backdrop for the people that are going to ask what's going on here. Because as, as the miracle is played out, it demands an explanation. And so as Peter explains it, he's going to explain to them that Jesus has come and there's a new reality and everything needs to change. They need to change. They don't need, they missed the Messiah because they rewrote the Messiah in their image. They rewrote God to their expectations, and so they missed what God had. And God had something far greater than they were even asking, because what they didn't need was a little help. What they needed was a radical change. And that's where we connect with the story as well, because I think it's easy for us to look to God for a little bit of help, to look to God for a little bit of uh, support or ease or... Um, aid or wisdom or whatever, and what we have to do is realize that there's a deeper need that we all have, and we have to start there. God doesn't just want to do a few things for us. He wants to change us radically. So as we look at Peter's uh, story, let's read the rest of the passage and see what he does with this miracle. We left it in verse 12, the first part, when Peter saw it. He addressed the people, and here's what he says. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we've made him walk? 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate. And when he had decided to release him, or I'm sorry, when he had decided to release him, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, He's made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorant, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. The times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul and soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people and all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Okay, so he, he uses this man as a backdrop. And this man's healing is more than just physical healing. The context makes that really clear. The context is really about receiving Christ by faith. And this man first doesn't know what's going on. God heals him. And then he becomes this, this uh, maniac of praise who's clinging to Peter and John. We know that he's ready to be identified with them. And he becomes the backdrop to then talking to the rest of the people. Because this is not terribly long after the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Jesus has been there, now he's gone. Jerusalem is trying to figure out what's going on. Here's a crowd, here's Jesus' key disciples, and they're going to say, okay, here's what you need to understand. You see what happened to this guy, now let me tell you what's going on, right? And uh, there's two things that his sermon really lays out for us. God chases us to change us. God chases us to change us. That's one point he's got. And the second point is we are changed as we trust Christ. Okay, God's chasing us to change us. Let's look at his logic there. Uh, and it, it's found on the, on the outsides of the passage, verses 12 through 18, verses 23 through 26. Look at, look at some of the language here. Jesus is the promised, okay, as you, as you follow the, the narrative through, it sets it in the context of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It sets it in the context of the promise and the expectation. It sets it in the context of God's been doing these amazing things through history, and here he is. Jesus, he calls him the servant, which would have caused them to think about the servant of God in Isaiah 53. Um, he's the holy and righteous one, which was a, some language that they would have expected referring to the Messiah. He's the author of life. He is the prophet like Moses, and he's the offspring. That's what Peter says to this group of people who are saying, what just happened? This happened because Jesus is that. 
Now, he doesn't stop there because he's, he's moving from just telling them some truth to trying to get them to respond. It's not just who is Jesus, but who is Jesus to you that he's looking for. And so then he's, he points this out. You know, that's who Jesus is. Yet you, you handed Jesus over to be killed. You disowned Jesus before Pilate. You asked for a taker of life instead of the author of life. Jesus is the one who gives life. You said, let's have a murderer instead. You killed the author of life. So this is who God sent. He's the promised one. He's all of these amazing things, and yet you did this stuff. Yet God fulfilled his plan through that. That's what we find in verse 18, where it talks about, you did these things, you did them in ignorance, I understand that. You need to know that God actually had a greater plan at work. And that's a good point for us to just stop and think about for a second. Sometimes the circumstances and choices in our lives, well, they go all kinds of different ways. And sometimes they're not very pleasant, sometimes they're hard, sometimes we're stupid, sometimes other people are stupid, sometimes sin gets the best of us or somebody else. And what we need to understand in this passage points out to us is that even in the midst of that, God is sovereign. So if you're in a place right now that you're feeling that pinch, that rub, that disjointed, painful, set of circumstances that comes from things not being right. Even if you've made bad choices, even if you've sinned, even if it's other people's sin, you need to know that nothing has ever spun out of God's control. And in the midst of that, he's still working his will. And so in the midst of their sinful choices, God is still at work, and he uses that to encourage them. Uh, he raised up his servant, and he sent his servant to bless them. Now think about this for a minute. He's just said, look, Jesus is the ultimate and you killed him. And God raised him back to life and he's coming back. Now if we stop there, that would be like the scariest thing in the world, wouldn't it? If there's somebody that I killed and they're able to come back to life and they're coming for me. But that's not what it's about. He says he's coming, he, he sent his servant to bless you. That's the way it ends in verse 26. And by the way, to bless us, verse 25, includes us in a greater sense. So we can read this passage. It's very specific to their context as the Jewish people in Jerusalem at that point in time. But we still have a connection point because at a larger level, it's true for us too. It's true of us that we participated through our sin and putting Jesus on the cross. And it's true of us that the Father raised him and has sent him to bless us. Right, so finish the logic out. So here's what, has, here's what has to happen. They must either turn from their wickedness to Jesus or be destroyed. Okay, that's, that's his basic logic of the passage. So I want you to look at verse 26 again briefly. See what it says? says, um, let me see if I can find it. My Bible suddenly lost that verse. There we go. First, it's a, it's a little disorienting, I must say, to be here. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Let me just stop and say that, lest I forget. I'm really glad to see you guys, but we're, we're going to ask for the offering, and I, I realize I don't even know how you guys do that, so I'm going to just, <laughs> in that moment, whoever's in charge, I'm going to say, it's offering time, and you do what you're supposed to do, because I don't know how that works, right? I'm, I'm really a little bit taken aback by this this microphone, because I've got a big old fat head, 
right? This thing is totally different design. It must fit Dennis really well, and now we got this fat head in there. I'm just glad it's not a waist belter. That would have been even worse, <laughs> right? And it, it keeps working its way back off of my head. But I'm thinking that might be intentional because our sermon is scheduled for five minutes longer than yours, so I'm thinking this thing just pops off the back of my head at <laughs> 35 minutes, and then I'm unplugged. So anyway, all of that to say I'm, I am glad to be here. Forgive me if I'm a little disoriented here, but... As Meanwhile, back at the sermon, I have no idea what I was just doing there. Um, verse, verse 26, look at this, what it says, God having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you. We all want God to bless us, right? I mean, that's, everyone wants the blessing of God. We teach our kids early on, pray that God would bless us. And what do we ask for? We ask for all kinds of things, right? We ask for health. We ask for peace. We ask for a spouse. We ask God to change our spouse. We ask for kids. Then we ask, why did he give us kids? Right? And our kids ask for, keep us safe during the night, and, and God bless mommy and daddy and Ruffy the dog or whatever. I mean, we have all these things we pray for, and they're not in and of themselves wrong. They're good, in fact. And God does bless us that way, But look at what God's talking about when he's talking about blessing. He raised him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. The blessing is not that he would change my circumstances. The blessing is that he would change me. Because that's really the most important thing. Think about this. Right? These are the Jewish people who've been praying and looking for the Messiah for hundreds of years. And he shows up and they kill him. If you can miss it that badly, the problem is not external. It's you. The blessing of God, ultimately, that Jesus has come to bring is a new me. That's what I need most. That's what Jesus has been sent to do. God doesn't want to perk up my life. He wants to blow up my life and give me a new one. That's what the blessing of God is. Other things matter. Don't tell your kids, they, don't tell your kids God, please blow up my life and forget the dog. It's okay. It's okay to pray for the dog and mommy and daddy and all that stuff. But there's... There's a deeper reality that God says, whoa, you don't need some sort of, you know, it's like the guy at the gate who's just asking for a few coins. I just need a little change. And God says, no, you need a whole lot of change. You need everything to change, starting with you. That's what the blessing of God is here. He doesn't want to perk up my life. He wants to blow it up and give me a new one. And I don't need a new setting. I need a new self. And I dare not settle. As he's addressing these people, they've missed it. And when he confronts them with that, it, we, we saw a couple of weeks ago, they are cut to the heart. This is a repeat. It's a different audience, but it's the same deal. No doubt they're cut to the heart. This one doesn't focus on that aspect. But no doubt there, there's moments of, of, of actual terror. We missed the Messiah. We killed him. And, and he says, yeah, that's bad. But understand this, God is is chasing you 
to bless you. You're pushing him away. You're trying to kill him. And he's pursuing you anyway. In fact, your very wickedness, he worked into his plan so that he could change you. That's really the gospel. That's what Peter's trying to get at here. So, let me ask some questions here. How much of your life or my life is just wanting God to come in with some little improvements and some helps along the way? And how much of my life is saying, Lord, it's, it just, I, need a, I need you to blow it up and I need you to start over. Some of us here, maybe are hearing this reality for the first time or hearing it perhaps in a fresh way, but here's the reality. Your life is broken and you can't fix it. Because not only is it broken, it's wicked and under God's condemnation. Now, I'm not saying that to be down on you because that's true of me as well. It's true of everyone born into this world unless we allow God to blow that up and change us. And for some of us in the room today, maybe you're looking for something from God. God loves you. He loves you no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. Your actions, however good or bad, don't change the fact that he loves you. And he wants to do things for you. But the thing he ultimately wants to do for you is the thing that actually matters. He wants to blow it all up and give you a fresh you. I know a lot of you in this room have actually embraced that reality, but let me ask you this, because this is the battle that I have to fight. That's a reality. That's what I want. And in order to, to, to come to Christ, I had to, if you will, reorient my life around Christ. That's why the emphasis is on turning and repentance. Right? I had to reorient my life around Christ. And now that God's in my life and the Holy Spirit's working in me, there's a, a, a perpetual temptation to back away from that and reorient Christ around my life. How many of us need to just back up to this fundamental truth? There's a second thing that is laid out here. We're changed as we trust Christ. Okay, so he comes to change us, and then in the middle of this section, he, look, he, he fleshes out at least a little bit of what that change is supposed to look like in verses 19 through 21. And here's what he gives us. He gives us three things. When we turn to Jesus, we're completely forgiven. We experience spiritual refreshment, and we have hope for restoration. Completely forgiven. Right? Forgiveness is a wonderful thing, because we're all dumb. Right? I mean, and there are, there's, there's like dumb, and then there's really dumb, and we may remember that f- throughout our lives. And the people we wrong may remember that throughout their lives, too. I mean, I can remember highlights of dumb in my life. Like the time I told my mom, no, 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 we don't need to go around the back of the house to look and see if a window's open. I think I can get the door open. And I threw my shoulder into it and splintered the door jam and drove the doorknob through the wall. I'm sorry, Mom. That was, that was dumb. The time my dad said, 
Uh, I was young and my, my little sister was younger and she had this little trike that was made out of wood, this little scooter thing. And, and my friends kept riding on it and they were going to break it. My dad says, don't let them ride on it. And they wouldn't listen to me. So I finally just jammed it up in the Y of a tree. It was really wedged in there. They couldn't ride it. And so finally they lost interest and they left. And then I had to get it down. Oh, I know what I'll do. I just jumped up, grabbed it and hung on it. And it came down. Well, half of it came down. <laughs> that was dumb. I'm sorry, dad. When... When my, one of my daughters was really little, she liked it when I would hang her upside down. You know, I mean, really little. So I'd keep her feet between my fingers like that. And woo, woo, woo. And it was fun to watch her. <laughs> so I'm in our dining room doing that. It's a summer day. And uh, I'm, I'm in the dining room. And there's a ceiling fan right over the table. And I'm standing right there going, woo, woo, woo. And I notice the longer the drop, the greater the reaction. So I think, hey, this is great. I'll just raise her up even higher. And then go, woo! So I go, oh, and she starts wailing because I stuck her feet in the fan. And I have to say, I'm sorry, David. <laughs> right? Or the time I'm fixing dinner, a dad dinner, right, for my girls. It's going to be peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And they're, they're relatively young. That's why it's still peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Later, it's get in the car. We're going to Taco Bell. And they start eating and they start complaining. Dad, this is nasty. Dad, this is yucky. And we, we, we worked with our girls so that they really weren't complainers. I'm like, what you, what's the matter with you? Just eat it. Just eat it. Until I start to make my sandwich and see that it is fuzzy all the way around. <laughs> I've got my daughters. I'm sorry, girls. They still don't let me forget that. Right? It's, it, we do dumb things. And we need to be forgiven. Those are things you probably have some too that make us wince, but we laugh at them. But what about those things that are filled with heartache? Because there's nothing funny about them. How many words have come out of our mouths that we wish we could take back? How many times have we failed and our integrity has lapsed and we wish we could undo it? People in this room look back in their past and they say, you know, I was unfaithful to my spouse. Just even me saying that puts a knot in your stomach. I had an abortion when I was younger. Fill in the blank. There's something extraordinary that Peter says here. He says, we're completely forgiven. Do you see that? Repent, turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Now, because the world's the way it is, we're the way we are, there's some things we wish we could change and we can't, but not with God. One of the great, beautiful things is no matter how stupid or how wicked I am or have been, God's got me. And in Christ, it's blotted out. That's extraordinary. You experience spiritual refreshment. This is something he tells to people who aren't going to be delivered the way they want. They're still going to live as an oppressed people, and if they become followers of Christ, even more so. It's not that God's going to, you know, 
make your life more comfortable necessarily. He may even make it harder, but there will be these extraordinary times of refreshment where the creator of your soul will commune with you and let you commune with him, and you will be refreshed. You will be renewed. You will be restored in what matters most. And that's really important when life's hard. It's really important when life's hard. And some of you may be in a place where life is hard right now, and I would say two things to you. One, have you stopped and sought the refreshment that's in Christ, or are you just trying to go do it, face it, solve it, overcome it in your own strength? Second question is this. If you're trying, if you're struggling for the refreshment and it's not coming, are you practicing patience? Patience with God's timing and with God's plan. Because God's the one who said, I won't allow you to be tempted beyond your ability. He's the one who said, everything will work together for good. He's the one who said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He's the one who said, if I gave you my son, I won't withhold any good thing from you. He's the one who said that the very struggle we face is shaping our souls and the tears that we cry will just make the glory that he's going to reveal in us all that much sweeter. We also have hope for restoration. That's what he says to them. So look, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and ultimately that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. There's, there's a final answer to come. This isn't the last word. This isn't the final answer. So even in the midst of the hard things, I can have hope. And it's not, it's, it's not, a, it's not a fatalistic resignation. It's actually redemptive. That's where Peter and John are living. Life's hard for them. But God's working. They're clean and forgiven and right with him, and they have this refreshment, and he's coming back. And he's invited us. He's invited them. He's inviting everyone who's listening then and everyone who's listening now to say, and we get to be a part of his work now as we wait for his ultimate work then. Who is Jesus to me? What response do I need right now? Some of us maybe need to repent. Repent of sin and turn to Christ. Or some of us need to repent of a shabby view of God. We're followers of Christ, but we're not following right now because we think there's a better way. We have a shabby view of God. Some of us need to seek refreshment and some of us need to cling to the hope that we have. Where are you? If the name of Jesus has the power to raise a man who never walked, it means everything's changed. And Jesus is really the answer to my life. I'd like to pray, and I'd like to ask the ushers to come. If you have a prayer request or need, you can share that on your card there. Lord, thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives, and thank you for this opportunity to worship. We just... We want to praise you with what you've given us and with who we are. We need more of your grace. Uh, would you please, Holy Spirit, work within us, encourage us, strengthen us, renew us. And Father, if there's anyone here who doesn't know Jesus as Savior, would you bring them to the place of understanding and repentance, we pray in his name. Amen.